And for my sermon research for this week, I had every intent to watch the documentary called The Rise of the Sufferfests. And the rise of the Sufferfest is this documentary about the rise of these obstacle course races that have become so prominent in the last 10, 10 years in America. So like Tough Mudders. Has, and so Dave asked for a show of hands. Has anybody in here completed a Tough Mudder? So we got a few folks. Uh, and uh, yeah, don't be shy. And uh, over the last seven years, last year, seven million people competed in Tough Mudders, and uh, they generated $500 million worth of revenue. And after somebody here did a Tough Mudder, and they came in and said, they're sitting on a gold mine. All you need is like a field and some hay and some like barbed wire, and you charge people $150. And uh, the documentary was, why, like, why do people willingly pay to go through pain? Like, normally we intentionally shy away from it, but here's something that people are paying, and I was going to tell you what the documentary said, but I fell asleep through it, so I'm sorry. That's not an indication of the quality of the movie. Uh, I was just tired. But one of the questions that it was answering is, why? Why would you go through this? And even just thinking about the, the idea, the concept, I wonder if... The Apostle Paul, like if he sat down, if he did like a time machine and he could watch, I wonder if he wouldn't say, you know, do you want a sense of adventure? Like, do you want ch the challenges of an obstacle race that you have a sense of triumph when you overcome? Because I've got an obstacle race unlike anything you could ever experience, and it's called the normal Christian life. Because you're going to be you're going to be challenged in a way that you never thought you could endure. You're going to have obstacles come up on you in a moment that change your whole life in a moment. And then the question is, can you overcome? Can you maintain your joy? Can you keep your peace in the midst of something far more tough than just a bunch of, of mud? And what he does in all of Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6 is he uses this image of walking. He says, you're going to be called to walk. Walk this way. The, the Christian life is an endurance race. And we're calling you, you're not going to be able to run because it's too long and it's too treacherous and it's too difficult, but you're going to have to walk Walk this way. And what I want to do is key in on, on chapter 5, because there's three things that we're going to kind of stick a post in the ground and think about. Because in verse 2, so look at chapter 5, verse 2. He says, walk in love. I want you to walk in love. And then in verse 8, he says, walk as children of the light. And then in verse 15, he says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So this morning, I just want us to think about those three things and almost have that, have that metaphor of the Christian life is an endurance race, and if you're going to make it, there's certain things you're going to need, and you're being called to walk in love, walk in the light, and walk in wisdom. And when you walk in love, what Paul's going to show us is sacrificial love is the fuel that's going to get you through this journey. You're going to need fuel. You're going to need clean fuel that's going to keep you going, and it's sacrificial love is the fuel to keep you going. And he's going to tell you, walk in the light. And what the light is, is the light is the direction. Walking in the light helps you know which direction you're going to go for this journey. And then he's going to tell you to walk in wisdom. And walk in wisdom. Understand what the time is. Wisdom is to understand the pacing. 
What type of pace do you go on this journey so you can make it? So what we're going to do is we're going to take next you know, 20, 25 minutes, and I'm just, just take each of those three things, and they're almost like self-contained vignettes of what it means to walk in love. That's the fuel, and how it's actually Christ's love on the cross and the gospel that fuels our life, and then walk in the light. That gives us direction because we're walking into the darkness, and then wisdom. What does it mean to be wise? And know our pacing. So let's pick up the first one. Walk in love. Sacrificial love provides the fuel for this journey. Pick up in verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, because, for because of these things the wrath of God comes among the, upon the sons of disobedience." So this first section, walk in love, and sacrificial love is going to be the fuel that's going to fuel you. Notice a couple things you see here. He's going he's to spell out what this kind of real love is, and there's two things I want you to note. Notice the lifestyle of love, verse 3 and verse 5, and then look at the language of love, how, how love talks. Verse 3, but, sexually Im but sexual immorality and impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you. Uh, that sexual, Im the lifestyle of love, here's the negative. This is what it's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to be. That first word in verse 3, it's actually the word pornea. And that's, that's kind of like a junk drawer word that encompasses everything that's outside of God's design for sexuality. So unchastity, prostitution, fornication, all of these things go into that. And then impurity. But what I find so fascinating is notice how often the Apostle Paul connects sexual immorality or impurity with greed. These two things go together. Greed, this is the internal spring of an external action. And notice what he says, this must not even be named among you. It's not even worth talking about. And it's fascinating how often sexual immorality and greed are lumped together. Because if you think about it, in our world, our culture, these are the two, two of the great idols of our age, sex and money. And so why are these things always connected? You know, in 2000, in America, the, the pornography industry was a $4 billion industry. In 2010, it went over a trillion dollars. So in 10 years, went from $4 billion a year to $1 trillion. Why? What caused that spike? And the answer is the Internet. You know, in 2000, there was an interesting article written in Forbes, and the title of the article was, Who Can Make Any Money Off the Internet? So the idea is you have this Internet. Who's going to be able to make any money off it? Well, one answer is that the porn industry has done very well. Why? Why are these things always linked together? And notice what Paul says. These things are going to short-circuit and undercut what real love is. This is not what real self-sacrificial love is all about. And then notice how he also connects it not just with what you do, but with the words you say. 
Look in verse uh, 4. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. Filthiness, obscenity. So that's kind of disgraceful speech or foolish talk. That's just silly talk or coarse joking. Uh, Actually, another way you could translate that is with the word buffoonery. And if you listen to local sports radio, there's a character who always talks about buffoonery. And that's just silly Silly speech. But it's interesting because it says these are marks of, uh, these aren't the marks of real love. This is not how love talks. And then he calls in verse 2, he says, you're to walk in love. So it might be worth taking a moment just to pause and say, well, what actually is love? What is it? You know, in the Bible, it's both a noun and a verb. And I think it's one of the most misunderstood words that we have. Just think about how we use the word love. I mean, we talk about we love, you know, we love chocolate and we love children. You know, we love sunsets and we love puppies and we love jazz music and we love magic tricks and love the magic. I don't think anybody loves them. And then you love, you know, love, I love pizza. Uh, we, we use love for really any, anything that's on this continuum of a various stage of like or desire. But some of the dangers is when we use kind of love for like or desire, you know, when people become the objects of liking or desiring, then we can manipulate and exploit and abuse them. Uh, we can often think of kind of love in a self-destructive fashion because sometimes self-deception and self-destruction masquerades as love. So it's like the addict who's going after the substance and saying, I'm just trying to you know, take care of myself. Or parents can love their children by giving them every single thing they desire, which is actually not really loving them. It's, it's hindering them. And sometimes we can transplant that idea onto God and think, well, if he loved us, then he would indulge us and he would give us our every fancy. If love is real, then it must take the form of unprincipled indulgence of all of our whims. And that's not what real love is. C.S. Lewis wrote a fascinating little book called The Four Loves because we really only have one word for love. But in Greek, there was four different words for love to kind of help you get different nuances. Uh, One was storge, and storge is just the feeling of affection and fondness. Another one was eros, which is the feeling of desire or need for some person or something that you feel is attractive and you desire it. Philea, which is brotherly love, and then there was the word agape. And what's interesting about what the early church does is they take that word agape, they hijack it, and then they pour our own meaning into it. So when you read in the New Testament what Paul's talking about, the kind of love he wants you to experience and then express is this agape, which is in essence reflecting the kind of love that Christ has for us. So a few of the kind of marks of that, what it means, this kind of love means doing good to others. It's seeking to make them great, seeking to serve them in such a way where uh, they, they experience Uh, Make them great by serving not their express needs, but their real needs. Seeking maturity, seeking for them real, in essence, glory. Uh, This kind of love is measured not by the shivs of itself to bring about that maturity or that ultimate good. It's the kind of love that doesn't wait to be courted. It's not limited to those who appreciate it or deserve it. And it's got a very specific uh, focus. It's not just in general 
Kind of like if you've seen the old Peanuts cartoon, there's Peanut cartoon where Snoopy's talking about how uh, Snoopy says, I love the human race. It's people I can't stand. And so that's not agape love. That's not the kind of love that he's talking about here. It's particular. It's focused. And so in all these ways, notice in verse 1, the way we're supposed to express love is the way we experience it from Christ. Look at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You've received his love in such a way. Now you reflect that back out to others. So in all these ways, real love, if you want to know what real love is, you don't look at Nicholas Sparks' novels. You look to the cross because that's what illustrates and demonstrates what real love is. The basic conviction that he has here is that we learn to love others by watching God in action loving us. So it's the cross, the atoning death of Jesus is the supreme example and demonstration of this love. And if we're, we're true, or if we really think about it, we know one of the themes of the Bible is that self-sacrificial love is the greatest power in the universe. There's no power quite like it. And deep down, we know, we know that's true. Um, you know, I think about this trying to help illustrate this to the life of our little girls. You know, we live in the shadow of the magic kingdom. And I have two princess-obsessed little girls. And even for Halloween this past week, one was the frozen fever Elsa which requires a different costume than the normal Elsa. And then the other one was Princess Belle. And uh, even the same, like, why do those stories move them? Why does it capture their imagination? And one of the reasons, whether they even realize it or not, at the very heart of both of those stories is that self-sacrificial love is the greatest power uh, there is. And whether the writers of those stories even know it or not, they're scratching on the surface, they're hinting at gospel realities. The story of Frozen is really about how self-sacrificial love is the only power that can break the curse and coldness in the world. And there's... And in the gospel, there's no story of self-sacrificial love quite like this story. And one of the, I mean, I think one of the points of the movie is that if you really just let it go and say no right, no wrong, no rules for me, you're going to bring isolation and destruction on you and all those people around you. But it's only self-sacrificial love that breaks the curse. It's the same way in Beauty and the Beast. Belle doesn't love the beast because he is lovely. It's her love that transforms him into something that is lovely. And that's the story of the gospel. It's similar to like, uh, why is Harry Potter so moving to people? I love it. You know, that's almost 20 years old. The first Harry Potter came out in 1997. And when it was first coming out in Britain, there was this fat, the, the publishers, uh, uh, Hofflin Mifflin, had to, they had to put out these very uh, elaborate, like leather-bound looking copies of Harry Potter that didn't have it, the, the title or anything on the front. Because you had these adults who, were, who was on the tube in London riding into his, uh, you know, his financial job, and he's reading these kids' books just crying and wanting to know, why am I crying? Why is this? moving me so so they made these books look like uh you know like a Jane Austen novel or something so he wouldn't be embarrassed when they said oh Reginald what are you reading oh this is you know this is James Joyce well no it's Harry Potter and the reason why you're getting so moved is because you know the theme of the story is that self-sacrificial love is the greatest power there is it moves us and one of the best stories I've heard um to illustrate this is Many churches, when they do baptisms and things, they'll have the people who are getting baptized tell their story, and they'll, 
um, record them. So I was watching some stories from a church uh, a couple years ago, and one of the stories from uh, the lady was just so profound to get at this reality. She, uh, she lived in New York and worked for one of the big three television agencies like ABC or NBC, one of the three. And kind of she said, you know, my, I was a no-nonsense, go-getter. She was charging up the corporate ladder, and she said, I did not care whose head I had to step on to get up. I was moving up. And then she got in this one position and uh, was very ethically unscrupulous, and she knew that if she, you know, take this chance, she was going to do some things that really kind of legally were not above board, but if she didn't get caught, it could elevate her to a certain place, and so risk-reward is worth the risk. Well, she she got caught. And then her boss was calling her in, and she kind of knew coming that she coming right in that she was going to get fired, and just kind of braced herself for the hammer to drop. And so she sits in his office, and he starts kind of really letting her have it and reaming her out. And then she's just waiting, waiting. All right, cut to the chase. No more. Just tell me I'm fired. And uh, he never does. And she just waits and waits. And finally, she interrupts him, and he starts talking about, all right, here's how we're gonna, you know, we're gonna fix this. We're gonna do this. We're gonna do that. We're gonna do that. And she stops. Wait, wait, wait. Like are you firing me? He's like, no, I'm not firing you. She says, why are you not firing me? I know how this works. You should be firing me. He's like, do you want me to fire you? Well, no, but why are you not? And he said, well, I'm just not. And she wasn't going to let it go. Why are you not firing me? And uh, finally, uh, he said, look, I've been here for 30 years, built up a lot of just kind of capital. Uh, when it came out, what happened? I just kind of absorbed it. I took the, the blame. Now I'm in some hot water, but we're going to work through it. We're going to figure this out and you're not getting fired. And she sat there stunned and she said, she looked at him and said, wait a second. My entire career, I've had bosses who took the credit that I deserved, but I've never had a boss took the blame that I deserve. Why would you do that? And uh, he kind of fumbled around some answer, didn't really say it. She said, no, 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 why would you do that? And finally, he looked at her and said, look, I, I know you probably, I'm a Christian. I don't know if you understand what that means. It doesn't mean that I, like, vote Republican or do all this. What it means that I'm a Christian means I believe I have my life because Jesus took the blame that I deserved And so what he did for me on this grand scale, I wanted to do for you on a very small scale. And then hearing that, you know what she said when she looked at him and she said, where do you go to church? And what it is, she's recognizing that there is no power like changes us. And so for you, maybe you have a fuel that's going to propel you in this life. And so for you, maybe you've experienced what she's experienced, where your whole life you feel like you've been leveraged, where you, you work in a place that's just using you uh, for what you can produce, and you're just being leveraged. Well, here is a place where you can find real love, not being leveraged. And it comes from self-sacrificial love. Notice we said verse 2, he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice for God. And the gospel, the power of it is unleashed when we, in 10,000 small ways every day, do in very uh, a, a little way what he's done for us in a big way. So maybe what God's calling you right now just in your life is not kind of one grand heroic act of self-sacrifice, but maybe it's just the little mundane acts every single day 
of just waking up a little earlier for someone else, doing a little things so you can give for others. That's the first thing. That's what's going to fuel us. Now, let's think about this second thing. Walk in the light. The light provides the direction for the darkness. Look, he picks this up in verse 8 where he says, uh, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are in the light, in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. It's shameful to speak of the things that they do in secret. And now what he's getting as the reality of the darkness. See, in the darkness, it's the light that's going to provide direction for the journey. And there's a couple different ways the darkness can descend. It can descend mentally where we enter into the darkness and it just clouds all that we think and despair and darkness can kind of grip your mind so you can't see through it. Uh, The darkness can descend and it can grip your heart. So you actually don't know how to properly judge things and love things. And you, with your heart, your affections, you love things that you shouldn't or you love them at a level you shouldn't. I've been reading an article about Teach for America. And one of the teachers in Teach for America was in inner city schools. He was a music teacher trying to get kids in inner city schools to appreciate Beethoven. He said one of the challenges of really getting any modern 21st century teenager to appreciate Beethoven, and one of his lines, he would always say, when you say, when you criticize Beethoven, you're not telling me anything about Beethoven. And the idea is, I know Beethoven actually, his music is great. When you criticize it, you're not saying anything about him, you're just telling us about you, that you can't hear it or you don't experience it. And what I think one of the things Paul would say is when you don't see any of the light, the joy, the beauty of the gospel, you're not telling us anything about the gospel. You're telling us something about your own heart. Darkness can grip the heart. But what Paul focuses here on in this chapter is the way darkness affects the life, your volition, your will, your behavior, the things you do. That's the key point here. He says, look at the things they walk, walk as children of the light. Not in, you know, we even have a term like nightlife, the things done at night, unfruitful works of darkness in verse 11. And this is the way it is. These type things, uh, they squander, they drain, they're not fruitful. They don't produce anything that is of good, uh, that's valuable. In one sense, the story of the prodigal son is the perfect illustration of a life lived in darkness because it's a life that continually to squander, to waste, to waste resources, to waste opportunities, to waste uh, people and places and things. And what the darkness does, the reason why we need to walk in the light is you all know the challenge of trying to get anywhere when you're walking in the darkness. So even just getting from your bed to your bathroom in the middle of the night can become treacherous. You're walking in the darkness. And uh, you can step on a Lego and lacerate your foot and start screaming out because it's dangerous out there. And walking in the darkness. And the darkness, one thing is it disorients you. You don't know where you are, where you're going. It dislocates you. You don't know who's around you. you it isolates you. You become lonely. And the darkness can come. Sometimes the darkness can fall on you in an instant. Like what happened to Zach and Anna. The darkness fell in an instant. 
You remember that morning when kind of we were in panic trying to call back and forth, find out what happened, and Cynthia, I was in a meeting, and Cynthia sent this panic phone call, like, I think Zach's in the emergency room. Have you heard anything? What's happened? I was like, that can't be right. You, you Somehow you've missed that. Can't be right. We were at the YMCA last night playing basketball. There's no way he's in the emergency room night. But in just an instant, the darkness can fall. Sometimes the darkness comes, and it's real gradual, and it's slow, and life just, it's almost like the light of the joy that you had either in, at your wedding or when you first had your children, and over just this season of life, it slowly dims, and the darkness comes slowly. But we walk through the darkness and then sometimes, like Psalm 23, that even though uh, he actually leads us through the valley of the shadow of the darkness. But one of the things, the power of the cross is that, have you ever noticed if you're reading through the uh, description of Christ's death in, in all of the Gospels, all of the Gospel writers go out of their way to tell you that every key event happened in the darkness, that it was supernatural darkness. And the reason is, is because Christ was plunged into the ultimate darkness so that we wouldn't have to be. He bore the ultimate darkness so that now we wouldn't have to. And what that does, it relativizes all of the darkness we go through. Probably my favorite way to illustrate this is from the pastor at um, 10th Presbyterian Church in the 1950s. His name was D.G. Barnhouse. He was a wonderful pastor, but as a young man, his, um, tragically, his, his wife was killed, and he had two young children, and they were driving home from the funeral, and he was trying to, you know, he's like thinking, you know, as a pastor, as a father, you know, what do I say to, to my children? And they were stopped at this red light, and this big truck came zooming by, and it, it came by so fast, it shook the whole car. And uh, he looked back at his little girls, and he says, honeys, would you would you rather get hit by the truck or by the shadow? And I said, well, the shadow, Daddy. And he said, Mommy, or Jesus, got hit by the truck of death, and now Mommy just got hit by the shadow. Because it relativizes our darkness. He was plunged into the ultimate darkness, so now it's just the shadow that we experience. He endured that darkness on the cross so that we could live in the light of the resurrection in the here and now. So we don't walk in darkness any longer. We can walk in the light. And so how can that help you in your, in your life? One of the things is often you will be plunged into situations of deep darkness that you often have no idea how we're supposed to respond or what we're supposed to do. But if you can ask every, ask every four-year-old who's scared of the dark, if you can just get a two-watt light bulb, that changes everything. And so maybe you might find yourself this morning in a situation where you think, man, the situation at my job with my in-laws, with our financial situation, the situation that we're in with this relational mess, this health mess, this physical thing, it's just this dark mess. And we don't even know which way to go to have any sense of direction and purpose and hope. Well, just two watts can utterly transform that whole situation. He endured the darkness on the cross so we can live in the light of the resurrection and we can find two watts of light to give us uh, direction and path. The last thing I want us to think about here is the walk in wisdom. Notice in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, 
not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. What's interesting here, he's going to connect wisdom with making good use of your time. So here, wisdom is going to give us the pacing. So self-sacrificial love gives us the fuel. That's what's going to keep you going and give you the energy for this life. And then light is going to help give you the direction so you know which way to go and how to chart your course. And then wisdom is going to help you have the pacing of time. And that, I think, is one of our tremendous challenges just in life. How do we use our time well? Even while we were singing, I, I got a buzz. My phone buzzed me and shocked me in my leg, and I pulled it out, and it was my weekly screen time report. So even Apple's working into the, their, uh, their operating system, trying to help you <laughs> not waste so much time with weekly screen time, trying to make the most out of time. This past year, we started, we did our first, with the girls, our first big Le- Lego project. So they're six and five, and we first started, and our first big Lego project was going to be Elsa's Castle. And uh, so it took us about nine days, about 19 hours, uh, probably, I don't know, maybe three liters of tears, several frustrations. And uh, so we had both girls, but it was really the oldest. It was her Lego castle. And it was, it was fascinating to see the dynamics of their personalities. I don't know if there's something in birth order or not, but one of them was very particular. Everything has a certain place and a certain order, and we have to follow the directions exactly. And as we were building, it was right, but it wasn't very fun. And then we had the other one who was just taking pieces and just, ah, look, I made a dog. Look, this is a wall. Well, no, we're not making walls or dogs. Well, follow the directions. And she had a lot of fun, but there was nothing actually built. So we had one that was very productive, but no joy, and one with a lot of joy, but no productivity. And so trying to figure out wisdom is the fusing of the two, finding the joy and the productivity. But we were learning lots of lessons about life. Uh, One lesson is there's no point in building Lego castles when you have barbarian little brothers who are just going to ransack them and destroy them. That's, that's one lesson. But another lesson was that when you're building the kind of Lego projects, everything has its place. You build it piece by piece. And if you use the right piece in the right place at the right time, then eventually something beautiful is going to take shape and be built up. And if you think about that as just kind of a metaphor for life, I mean, your life is made up of so many different pieces, so many different people, events, circumstances, times, places, and they're all being fit together to slowly over time to build something. But what, in one sense, what makes Lego, you know, the the joy is you have the finished picture and then you actually have the blueprint for how to get there. But the challenge in life is you don't have either. You don't have the finished picture of who you're going to be, and then you don't actually have the, the blueprint uh, to get there. But the glory of the gospel is that God does. You know, we're committed to the building project of building us, building our lives, but the reality is we're not the site superintendent and we're not the architect. He is. There is a story that's your life that's being written, but you're not the primary author. 
someone else is. And one of the essences of wisdom is to know how to think clearly about the times and seasons you're in as they relate to how your life is being put together. It was a beautiful poem in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, that gets at what it means to understand time. It says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away and a time to gather, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And here in this poem, there's 28 items they're broken up into two, two pairs of 14. Uh, so you have four kind of multipliers of seven showing the totality of every season that you can end. And one is this complete summary of all the seasons of life. And you see as you read it, there's this beautiful perplexity of, excuse me, of life. It's full of goodness, full of good times, full of hard times, and then full of times that are just in between. Life is full of difficult, hard times, times of killing, tearing down, weeping, mourning, hating, warring, but then also fuel, full of beautiful times. And the challenge is you can't actually take and schedule these. Like you can't pull out your planner and say, all right, we're going to have 30 minutes of mourning today. I'm going to have an hour and a half of joy today. I'm going to have 13 minutes of warring and 22 minutes of peace. You can't actually schedule these. But you have to just enter into them and embrace them. And as I think about not just kind of the Lego metaphor, but just my children's life in general, I think many of their frustrations in life are because my wife and I see a bigger picture than they do. You know, we're trying to help them work towards a goal that they can't understand. And so even little things like where to eat, what to wear, when do you have to go to bed, where you can go, where you can't go, you know, we're trying to impose on their little lives rhythms and patterns of being to help them fit in an order that's going to bring them health and life. You know, the goal is security, the goal is freedom. You know, we want them to be free from the stress and worry of trying to coordinate events and tie up loose ends and balance decisions about time, place. Uh, and I've been told that all of you who have teenagers will say, if you think it's hectic now, you just wait. Wait till you're running the taxi cab service of trying to get one to swimming and one to gymnastics and one to school and one to soccer. All the while, you're trying to prepare dinner and pay the mortgage and cut the grass and get here on time and trying to coordinate their life into a bigger whole. But wisdom in time is seeing our life like theirs. To understand in this situation, look in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children... You're the beloved child, and God is the actual one who has the blueprint of your life, who's bringing you to a place of good and is ordaining and orchestrating and moving things for you so you don't have to worry about them. Part of the text of wisdom, part of the, the path of wisdom is that we grow up by growing small. 
so we can focus on the small things, not these larger things that he is doing. And the patterns and purposes of our life are visible to a good and wise God who can see the whole as beautiful. But as part of being wise is to recognize that we have only a very limited view. We actually don't have the big picture, but he does. And he's calling us to certain faithfulness in the moment. So as we conclude this part, just think for a moment, what does faithfulness for you look like in the moment today? Maybe what are some of the small things that God wants you to be faithful to today? You know, one of the things he says is be wise because the days are evil. So you'll need to be vigilant, but also know how to make the best use of the time because the days are short. You need to be intentional. So as you look at this whole thing, self-sacrificial love fuels the Christian life. Light gives us direction and wisdom helps us know how to live with pacing. Don't you want more of this in your life? Even as I read this and and think through these things, man, I need more self-sacrificial love to experience so I can then give. I need more wisdom. I need more light. So if you need more wisdom, where do you go? Who do you look to? Because biblical wisdom is not a life hack. It's not a technique. Biblical wisdom is a person. You go to a person. So let's take a few minutes now as we pause and let's just pray for that we'll experience these three things, that we'll experience self-sacrificial love, that we'll experience what it means to walk in the light, and then we'll be wise and know how to make the best use of our time. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we see here. We ask that you help us. We praise you that there is no power like self-sacrificial love, and we ask that you would help us to experience that and and feel that. Help us above all things to look to your son and to look to the cross and to know what he's done for us, what he can do to us, and what he can do through us. So I pray for anyone here who's coming there this morning and they just feel like they've been used or manipulated or exploited in life. We pray that you would take them by your spirit and through your word to Jesus' feet and help them to experience that transformative power of his love for them. And we pray that you would help us. We confess clearly that we live in uh, a dark world that we often don't know the best way to move forward. And we ask that you would give us the light we need. We thank you for the word that it's a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And you'll give us all the light we need to make uh, take the next step in godliness and faithfulness. So I pray for anyone here this morning who's come in and they're in the midst of of darkness and maybe it's a difficult relational situation or some type of difficulty, we pray that you would give them the light they need to know how to walk well. And then we praise you for your wisdom. We confess that we live in a distracted age where we have a hard time knowing the best use of our time, and so we ask that you would help us. Pray for anyone here in this room where they, um, as, as they look back on their life, the way, you know, what is being built is not what they thought it should look like, and they're frustrated or discouraged or disappointed. Pray that you would uh, dispel that darkness with the reality of your sovereign love, that you have a good plan, that you know the plans that you have for them, and they're Plans to give them a hope and a future and uh, give them the encouragement to cling to those promises.